When we've talked about intersectionality on this podcast in the past, we've often talked about it with regard to race and gender, or maybe gender and gender identity, but never quite like we're going to do today. Our guest today is a queer British Chinese woman who is also a Brazilian jiu-jitsu competitor, an entrepreneur who raised over $10 million in venture capital financing, and the co-founder of an intentional, beautifully designed clothing company called A-Day. So just want to point out that if we were totally into perfectly performative scheduling, we might have had Meg on the show just as May turned into June when we moved from AA NHPI History Month, right? Asian American History Month, as it transitions into LGBTQ Pride Month. But we aren't because these stories are needed and are valid all year round. We're really excited to bring you this conversation. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Don't forget to buy our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism from your local independent bookstore and leave us a review on Amazon, please. Thank you. Hello, my name is Maggie, and I am the co-founder of Ede, which is a sustainable clothing company. I love that. I also love that you pronounced it for us because I always see it and think about it. <laughs> I'm like, how does one say this? Now we know. I think we said it like three different ways when in our prep. <laughs> I think I say it three different ways as well. So I think we're all on them. Yeah. You know, you say on your website that your co-founder Nina, and that's awesome that, that Nina's visiting, but that you both hold a number of shared beliefs. You know, the one most important one to you is that you really want to have and create a better future and that to truly thrive, you have to really be more intentional in how we live and what we invest our time and energy in. And so at this juncture, I'm really curious, what does that intentionality mean to you? Thank you, firstly, so much for reading that. And I think it's so important to us, not only as a brand, but within our culture in that, you know, I think one of the things that we think about a lot is about living beyond the binary and, you know, that our lived experiences of who we are and the customer that we come to represent. She has done so much in her life that, you know, which really forces her to think about how does she use her time? And so we want to give her the gift, gift of simplicity with her clothing. And that's also around the gift of time. And so it's really about through minimalism, like making her life easier. But I think within that, you know, if we unwrap that a little, it's also we see this brand as a beautiful platform for us to really care about all the things that we really deeply care about. Within that, definitely, you know, systemic racism, but also, you know, showing up for trans folks and all these other things. But it's really about, you know, being intentional, being educated. We think our customer is so, so smart, but how do we, you know, never ever speak down to her? How do we speak intentionally to her and make all these intentional choices, which, you know, really ranges from something in sustainability of fashion and, you know, what type of fabric do we use? What type of design do we use? You know, the editor detail, but we have such a limited amount of time on this earth, right? And how do we best use it? I love what you said, because I think it really goes to not only what you just said, but what we were talking about before we hit the record button about, you know, as we grow and we experience life, we continue to learn more about ourselves, right? And, you know, not only are you learning about your ideal customer, but also 
yourself in this creation process. And, and in doing that, sometimes we get to, you know, even unpack and sort of unlearn those lessons that we've been taught consciously or unconsciously about who we are and how we need to be and behave in order to thrive, right? So I'm so curious, what lessons have felt, you know, in your journey, the most liberating for you to learn? I think the one that was most liberating for me was also probably the most painful. So I was born in Beijing and I grew up in the UK. I went to college in the UK at Oxford. I went to Stanford for grad school and I've lived most of my you know, last decade in the US. But when the women were shot in the Atlanta uh, spa attacks, I broke down and every day I just cried. And it was actually probably the first time in my life that I realized that I was an Asian woman and what that actually meant for me. And the interesting thing is my partner is a biracial Asian white woman. She's half Hong Kong Chinese, half Italian, born in the UK. And she didn't experience at all what I was going through because while she identified as half Asian, she didn't grow up with that fullness of, you know, this hypersexualization of experience of being an Asian woman where Whereas I think for up until that point, you know, for 33 years, that was my main identity in terms of how I related to the world, that I was this, you know, kind of like comically sexy character where it was very expected that men said, you know, me love you long time to me. And that was how I understood my role in society and the role that I played. And when I saw those attacks, I felt personally you know, violated. And it was so deeply painful in a way that I didn't even realize that was there for me. And I think part of that is because in the UK, the amount of people who are Chinese specifically, but even Asian is incredibly low. Because of the history of the Commonwealth, a lot of the people who are Asian in the UK are South Asian, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi. There's very few kind of East Chinese Asians. And so it wasn't really an identity that I really had discovered until I moved to the US where there's a lot more Asian Americans that looked more like me. And so it was lost on me that I had only become this woman because that was how she was featured in mainstream television. And that was how she was interacted with. She was the prostitute, the high-class escort, you know, the massage parlor. And I had understood for so long, you know, even in these elite institutions and all of my jobs, that that was the role that I was supposed to play. And I remember this incident at my first job at Goldman Sachs. I know, I think, Sarah, you worked at Goldman, right? But my managing director at the time was uh, negotiating the bill with the client and it was definitely a bill in the millions and he joked that they needed that fee in order to pay for my shoe habit and that you know when I reflect on that now it was because I was in that role you know not just as a woman but as this person you know who was the hypersexualized, you know slightly vain but the person who was that object and part of that was my identity as a you know female but also in terms of like it's hard to know you know where that intersectionality lies because you know I was the only woman but I was also the only non-white person so how many of these boxes did I tick for them but I think that was the role I had to relearn a lot in the last two years especially and that has been incredibly freeing but incredibly painful. Thank you so much for sharing that you know I had a whole emotional reaction to the Atlanta shootings as well, because I had lived the first half of my life under my Japanese mom's roof, second half of my life, having lost my white father, you know, when he got sick and passed away and living with a white man and in predominantly white cities had sort of lived heavily in 
white spheres and that Atlanta shooting really brought me back into my body and all of the identities that I hold and left me crying. And so when you felt that you realized that some of these pressures had been put on you externally, right? That this was how society was portraying Asian women. How have you changed since that time? I think so. Even before that, I had felt like I wanted to speak up about you know, the stop Asian hate attacks. And that felt very easy because, you know, we all know that violence is bad. But I hadn't really explored my identity within that. I think, you know, pretty much throughout a lot of my, you know, teenage years and adulthood, I felt very cautious about, you know, drawing attention to any of the fact of, you know, my race. I wanted it to be, you know, buried underneath the achievements. When people looked at me, I wanted them to never think that, you know, I got there because of the minority program, because of any sort of selection bias. But now I realize what wonderfully proud thing it has been. And I'm so sad that I buried it for so long, but I understand completely why. I think, you know, pretty much every person that I've dated has been predominant, well, mostly white, some biracial. And every single one of them, like one person even told me how uncool it was, quote unquote, to be non-white. And that was my relationship with, you know, being Asian, especially in the UK and especially at institutions like Oxford, where not only were you like, you know, to be considered, I guess, cool, you had to have gone to a board- private boarding school and come from the right family and preferably be related to the queen. So there was just like a lot of weird heaviness that actually even moved into the US, I felt really liberated from. And You know, even when I went to grad school, it felt really cool that I was finally able to speak in Mandarin and to my dentist and to my doctor. And there were so many more shops and restaurants available. That was an incredibly freeing experience. But now, like, I really step into who I am and, you know, really lead by that first. I'm not only Asian, but I am British Asian. And that is a unique part of my identity that I really have been exploring and talking about. And before it was totally forgotten. What I'm really impressed, though, and which has really helped me is by the number of businesses generated by and created by founders uh, like the Omsom or August, you know, this new generation of entrepreneurs who are so vividly aware of the identity. I didn't have to go through this, like, you know, relearning and cover up like I did. That's fascinating. And going back to the thing you said about intentionality, you know, we do believe in that between me, Sasha, and I really deeply, which is why we've really pared down a lot of the involvement that we've had in our own separate spheres to really focus on the work that we can do here together on the Dear White Women platform. But when you talk about this intentionality and the role that your identity in, and has played in it, one of the things you've done is raise $10 million in venture capital funds. That's incredible, right? I think as a woman, as an Asian woman, as a queer Asian woman, you buck a lot of trends by doing that. And I think the latest stats are something like, isn't it still about only 2% of venture capital funds raised in the US go to female founders? And so I would love to hear, you know, what are some of the challenges that you faced and where was this process happening in relationship to your process of owning and stepping into your Asian identity and and sort of what were all the things that were coming as you were overcoming the challenges of raising funds for your company? It's really interesting because I think it wasn't 
something I was even aware of at any part of the fundraising journey. I think at the time in my life when, you know, we initially started A-Day. So we are a direct consumer brand. Uh, we make clothing. A lot of it is very, very intentional. But all of it is very intentional. But we really try to use a lot of recycled fabrics, biodegradable, etc. Every item is very created using smart fabrics. Everything's machine washable, lightweight, breathable, etc. But I think that... I hadn't really even seen a lot of these numbers until very recently. And so, you know, when my co-founder, who she's a white German woman, when we ran out there, we were, were very, you know, aware that we were both women and two female founders is a rare combination. But what we also, you know, got a little bit caught up in is by the, you know, grass is greener next door. And we saw all these founders who were raising like 50, 100 million dollars venture capital. And I think we always compared ourselves against the guys. And I think the stereotypical like Silicon Valley folks are, it's a, you know, white male duo or white male trio, and they are raising hundreds of millions of dollars. We never thought of, you know, the kind of 10 plus million that we raised as like anything significant. We much more thought that was just the necessary amount that we needed in order to create the business that we wanted to create, that we were passionate about creating and authentic about creating. But I think now when I look at the numbers, it's amazing to me. I'm like, wow, you know, that's 2% of women and it's less than 1% of venture goes to kind of queer folks. So when I look at the Venn diagram between that, I honestly think it's amazing we raised any venture capital at all, but I just never really thought about myself in that identity. I do think that if I hadn't known that, I would have felt more scared about it. So I think in many ways, I, I'm lucky, I guess, <laughs> to not know the numbers. That's pretty cool. I wanted to stick with clothing then for a moment, if that's okay. Because you just mentioned so many appealing traits of A-Day. And I've noticed in general, quality has gone down this generation with most products, right? Fast fashion is on the rise. I think about appliances and my mom had the same microwave that I had as a child for like 30 years and the vice kept working. And now mine can barely last five years before something goes wrong or it needs replacing. And I feel like we've seen that in tech companies, in a lot of companies where products are made to sunset so that you need to buy replacements. And I get that from a financial perspective, like maybe if a company just the purpose is to make a lot of money, you want to make products that'll last a little bit of time, but that they'll come back and buy more. But that's not what A-Day stands for. How do you reconcile that approach with A-Day when you focus on the longevity of your clothes and their durability with sort of what we're seeing in society right now, which is just let's churn out more clothes so more people come back. I think one of the primary kind of ideas we have with our company, but also with our core customers is that we want to grow. And, you know, this leads into the better future idea. We want to create something that's better. And for us, sustainability isn't, you know, just about recycled yarns and, you know, not using virgin fibers and closed loop factories. And we do all of those things. But it's really about how do we make clothing that you can wear over and over and over again? Because the most sustainable thing, like you said with your mom, is that, you know, she can use the same appliance for like many, many, many years. And on average in the fashion industry, a piece of clothing is thrown out after seven wears. And for a day when we interview our customers, they wear their clothing for over five years. So that's over, you know, 200 plus wears. And that is the most sustainable thing. And with each, you know, item that we create, it's really about developing it in a way that people can keep on wearing in it so that, you know, it is more suitable for all sorts of activities that they can wear in their life. But 
our whole process is really about learning and optimizing. And I think especially when we think about mindset, right, it's not that, you know, there's one solution fits all, but even as we kind of grow, there's so much that we have to unpack and unlearn. And we're very open and honest with our customers. But by being a direct consumer brand, we have that relationship and we can say like, okay, we made a mistake here. Let's pull that back. You know, here's the new product and here's a much better fabric. And we're sorry that, you know, we made a mistake there. But it's a constant process that we have to keep on growing and learning with each other. I love that. First of all, I am... Full disclosure, I bought the up in the air jacket because I was like, this jacket looks amazing. And I put it on and I can feel, you know, the quality difference. And, you know, I look and Sarah and I've had this discussion for a long time about, you know, quality pieces that are, you know, can be more of an investment, but you want to have, to your point, you want to be able to wear this for a long time. You want to have this piece be quality and know and be confident when you buy it, that that is going to be something like that. And, you know, I've dealt on the legal side with other fashion brands that feel differently, you know, about that. And so I love what you're saying. And so how do you take this approach then that you have and change the industry? You know, in other words, how do you take the intentionality and that purpose that really drives what you do and get more brands on board with sort of moving away from this capitalistic pursuit, you know, of mass production and huge quantities and dollar signs to really focusing on quality and consumer needs. I think that, you know, f- across the industry, I really see people leaning into this. You know, we are a lot more responsible and sustainably minded than we have ever been before. And I think that's part of this conversation, right? It's not just in sustainability, but it's in being intentional in terms of the choices that we make, whether it is towards being anti-racist or anything else. But I think it's really about giving people what they need from each channel. So even in social media, where we might think that, okay, people just need something that's new, 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 a new outfit to show, it really, really actually, they just need something new to talk about. So one of the most like interesting things we've done is we have something called outfit repeater campaign and we actually pay people store credit to wear the same item for 10 days in a row and you can pair it with different pieces but people love that because they still get something to talk about it still becomes a topic of interest but I think where a lot of people get confused is that they're confused oh I need a new outfit with I need something new to talk about and the core like reason why social media exists hasn't changed right you don't necessarily need a new outfit for that to still be something new to talk about and I think especially as we you know we think about intentional choices in clothing and every aspect of our lives, you know, even when an item is expensive, we have to really look at the whole supply chain that was involved. And every single one of our factories has signed a commitment to people and the planet. We make sure that every, you know, person that we comes into contact with and clothing is still incredibly manual process of which there's a lot of people of all sorts of kind of shapes and colors involved that each of these people are paid a living wage and so that's why we ask people to think about in terms of our investment in terms of the ROI but also in terms of the cost per wear and that to me is really about impact of sustainability rather than like what is the most sustainable thing that people can get at like the cheapest price. I love that. I'm still sitting with the fact that the average person wears a piece of clothing seven times. I'm like, who are these people who can do that? That's a lot of turnover. And that actually really surprised me. So thank you for sharing that. You know, when you mentioned that about this idea of it's that people need something new to talk about, they don't need new items. You know, I think about how that relates to the work that we do in anti-racism and opening up these conversations, because Sometimes there are just some basic things that need to be communicated. There are just some fundamentals that we need more people to understand. And how can we use that methodology 
to give people something new to talk about in the anti-racism space. You know, I'm totally opening it up for discussion here. I don't know if there is an answer, but I love that idea of sometimes the core pieces of the puzzle don't have to change. It's how we position them differently as we talk about it. You know, especially when I think about marketing, it's really, you know, your core message doesn't change, right? In order for us to have this conversation, we have to show up as, you know, our passionate individuals, but also our unique selves and authentic selves. But who we are isn't going to change and how we feel about the topic doesn't change from day to day purpose. But it's really about how do we expand and evolve our conversations that more people get it, that more and more people can be interested in the conversation. I think a lot about, you know, a lot of these TikTok accounts. I think TikTok is really fascinating for me because some of the most successful accounts I see, they just have like one like in. So like I love following these families and like one of the ins is that it's a really young looking mom and she has like eight kids and oh my god isn't it amazing that she has eight kids and that's the whole theme of the account and she just does it like in like hundreds of different ways there's like a different tune and then she's like look I have eight kids and the whole account is essentially that core concept like it's you know you know what's going to be in the next video but what makes it interesting is the fact that it's entertaining. And I think one of the most powerful things right now is that, you know, social media has opened itself up in a way that allows anyone to be a content creator, for anyone to tell their story. And that's partially why, like, you know, over the last two years, I finally spoke up and I found my voice and I started speaking about all of these groups that I feel I am a part of, which I am underrepresented in, because you know, the beautiful and amazing thing is now when you create any form of content, as long as it's, you know, interesting, aspiring or engaging, like either Instagram or TikTok will make it explode. And even if someone like really hates you, they will comment on it, which then makes your post go even more viral. And I think that's one of the most amazing things that, you know, has given me a lot of joy in creating content because it's the ability for us to be able to reach anyone in the world is so much greater than ever before. I want to talk about that creating content for a second, because one of your other identities is as a jujitsu athlete, which I think is so amazing. And in my very brief time of doing anything martial arts related, which was a very short stint and went very poorly for me. Wait, I've punched Yoji Yamamoto in the stomach because I took a karate class in his dojo in Tokyo. I don't even know where to go with that, but okay. (laughs) Fashion and martial arts. Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yes, I like the tie-in that you did there. But I mean, one of the things that came out of and comes out of martial arts, I think, or any sort of very physical, but a physical mental connection like that is discomfort, right? Both physically, mentally, as you grow, right? As you get better in what you're doing, but also in sort of all the challenges that come along the way. And so I want to talk about that discomfort for a second, because I think, you know, as there is growth that comes out of that, but there are also challenges. And in the work that Sarah and I do, you know, we talk about this pushback that we get from white women in our work, how, you know, uncomfortable, which sometimes they say is traumatizing, and we go into deconstructing their real feelings around that, that they get, right, that discomfort about talking about race and racism. But, you know, growth is uncomfortable. And so how do you take what you've learned through 
jujitsu, right? And think people get more comfortable with being uncomfortable? Or how have you really addressed this concept in your life? I think that's a beautiful question. I think to me, life is about being uncomfortable. And I really hope that there's never a point in my life where I stop growing. And I think that is just is a continual cycle of, you know, kind of building up and then being broken down and revisiting my views and being able and hopefully humble, lacking enough ego to be able to say I was wrong and here's how I was wrong and here's how I'm going to change going forwards. I compete in jujitsu in what's called adult category, which just sounds silly, but it essentially means that I fight against the 17-year-olds. So often these are people who've been training as kids. And so I'm 34 right now and very few people over the age of 30 actually compete in adult category because uh, you're just it's very, very physical. It's very violent. And 17 years are really, really crazy scary. And that has been the most beautiful and most uncomfortable thing because jujitsu is all about kind of chokes and joint locks. So I have to be okay with stepping on the mats and, you know, maybe all my teammates are watching me and the 17 year old is probably going to try and break my arm in the first 10 seconds and I'm going to lose. This has also definitely happened to me, you know, several times. And that's the important part. It just doesn't matter, right? Being comfortable with that, I think, is so similar to so many things about being an entrepreneur. Like stepping onto the entrepreneurial journey means that I have to be okay with the company failing. And that has to be okay. And that's going to be permanently on my, you know, record. That'll be something. Maybe there'll be people out there who say, oh my gosh, you know, that's Meg. Like she got on by by the 17 year old or that she's Meg, you know, that's with the failed company. But ultimately these things are meaningless. It's just some some sort of like, you know, ego trip that I would or should care about it. And I think that's why, you know, all these things that I believe for a really long time, whether it was anything to do with my identity as a British Chinese woman or this sort of more straight version of me that I pretended to be so long before coming out those were mistakes that I made in the past and I step into a much more fuller version of who I am now even if for so many years I tried to hide that because I thought that you know living this more pretend and more life that was more heteronormative was going to make me more successful. Thank you I would love to talk a little bit more about that because you mentioned you know your identities and you mentioned before that over the last few years you've really been finding your voice and using it to speak out and and be more truthful about who you are. But so what are the, some of the main messages that you share about your various intersectional identities and what are you using your voice to change? Uh, So I stepped firstly into my voice. It was for Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I met my partner in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She is a five-time world champion. She goes by she, he, they pronouns. uh, She's non-binary. And it was really after meeting her that I came out because I had known I was queer for a a long time. Actually, a lot of my friends in college told me that I actually came out to them when I was 18. I just forgot about it. But it was just like seeing her and how much she braced her, you know, sexuality and gender so easily that made me much more comfortable and being free. But in jujitsu, there's a lot of issues of sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And a lot of people also, you know, not very kind of savvy in social media and other ways. And there was a large group of women across Europe, mostly actually white women, who had been sexually harassed and abused by this black Brazilian black belt world champion. 
And every time someone spoke up about against him, they were hushed by, you know, the affiliations, the organizations. And I realized that because I was in jujitsu and good at jujitsu, and my partner was very involved in jujitsu, but also because I was primarily entrepreneur and businesswoman, it was very hard to mess with me. And so I brought this story forward, and the guy ended up getting removed from his gym. But the most important part was. That everyone, you know, finally saw him for harasser and abuser that he was, and this story, you know, got its light of day, and these dozens of victims across Europe finally felt heard, and that's how I stepped into it. And since then, I, I felt very comfortable just being a voice、uh, for women, specifically in jujitsu. A lot of people talk to me about harassment and abuse, but I've been showing education about how gyms can kind of go forward with harassment. And it's really just this kind of weird intersection where I realized that a lot of gyms treated their business as a hobby rather than as an actual business. And so there was very relaxed ideas about harassment, etc. And even though it's been addressed in many other sports, especially in, in gymnastics in recent years, a lot of people in jujitsu just had, you know. Hadn't done any reading or heard about it or examined any of the law, and I realized that there was a lot of ways that I could use my business background to make the sport more professional. That's really cool. I feel like there's so many areas that we could go deeper on, but I was wondering what else we haven't asked that you think is important for our listeners to hear. I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of fertility, and I'm just exploring this journey at the moment. So I say my partner and I are trying to conceive in the next couple of months. But I do think the interesting thing is that as a queer couple, you just have so much choice, right? Like we get to pick what race the baby is going to be. We get to pick all of these aspects because. It's very hard to actually go fully anonymous on the whole process, but actually, if you think about it, for heterosexual couples, you also have that choice. But it just happens in many years beforehand that it's not necessarily for the baby, and it's you know more, I guess, like mostly for like a love connection. But it's very odd being presented with all of these choices and you know being kind of forced to make them even ahead of in just like a very separate fertility decision. And so I think, especially you know, from what I've learned about sperm banks, a lot of people you know do want to match their ethnic heritage and race background, but it really forces me to kind of question like why and what is really important and what are the values that we want to have in our future kind of offspring. That is true. I mean, I wonder about that too. You know, about would you choose a child that looks sort of genetically or biologically like you, and why do we choose that? I mean, when I have a biological child, one of whom looks nothing like me. The other one is like a mini me. And and how do you process all of that sort of stuff and make a conscious decision? I don't know because I think on the other side of things, when they don't look like you or they aren't like you, you you have so much more compassion for a, a like and heavily air quoting like an other right because they are your people. And then all of a sudden, like what we've talked about when we talk about like caring for people that don't look like us as a human. Species, we tend to have very strong in groups, and we relate to people who look like us or who have very strong similarities to us, and we need sometimes those personal relationships to get us over the hump of that inherent bias that we have. And do we want that for a family? I don't know. I'm curious where you stand on that. It was just something that I was thinking through, because as I understand it, for sperm banks, 
even five to 10 years ago, a lot of the people who were getting sperm were heterosexual couples who were more infertile. And now it's really shifted to be uh, single mothers and queer couples. And, you know, within that, I think maybe some people will be making uh, matching choices in terms of like, this is the heritage that I look like. I want um, our babies to also look similar. But does that mean that, you know, what racial biases are we putting into that choice? And does that mean that there's a group that is going to be, you know, continuously underserved within that, like it is in dating? And how does that play out, especially as this group grows? And so that was how I was thinking about it. We are likely going to be using a known donor. So I don't know if race was part of the issue. He happens to be a white man, but we picked him because we thought that he was the kindest and smartest and hottest person that we knew who was going to give us some sperm. But, you know, I think, you know, in this exploration where essentially we get to do tick boxes similar to dating apps, but, you know, there are so much, you know, deep unconscious biases at play here, but we're actually procreating here. That's just kind of wild for me to kind of think about. That's right. I have both have friends who have gone through, you know, going to a sperm bank as single mothers. And I have friends who have worked at sperm banks, like previously as business analysts, actually. And to your point, it does seem to be a very different, like that friend who worked at the sperm bank, this was years ago, it was discussing sort of heterosexual couples who were coming in. And now this process many years later seems to have changed. But those questions, talking about the information that you're given, the information that you may not know, the information that you choose to know, um, those are big ones. Those are very real ones. It also amazes me to hear that that has shifted so much in five years. Like you really realize how quickly norms can change then I wonder also how much will regulations change? Is society going to be okay with that new you? Like, I don't know. I think in this current climate where things feel so divided and controversial. I think I went down a whole like dark side of the internet on this topic, but there are all these, I don't know if they're quite legal, illegal Facebook groups where people actually just exchange sperm. And it's because, you know, during the lockdown, like sperm donors were unable to get to the sperm bank and actually donate. And then your sperm actually has to go through a period of six months of quarantine, even after all the testing. And so as I understand it, in the last two years, the amount of sperm that was available was actually just super low. And so all these groups have just popped up across the internet where like literally like men, you can just type to them and they will like ship some sperm to you or like I don't know, pass it off on internet. But, you know, within that group, just kind of colloquially, you also definitely see biases from, you know, when a recipient is asking for a sperm, but, you know, you see the posts that are more popular, right? And the more popular ones are definitely, you know, the ones where the person asking for sperm is like a young, attractive, femme-looking kind of white woman versus like someone, other races where, you know, sometimes you see these posts are just kind of ignored. I feel like this is probably going to get these groups shut down now. So maybe I should stop talking about them because they're actually really powerful to the pandemic. And I think it so ties into the bigger picture conversations we're having right now with the Supreme Court and the possible changes in Roe v. Wade and like, what is a parental right? And how do we make these choices? And is the person who donates the sperm at all responsible? How, like, there's so many repercussions in this realm of reproductive justice that need to be considered and hopefully will not be messed with. But I'm also not naive and watching that space carefully, you know? 
one of the interesting things was that um, as soon it's the way that like they describe people in this group. And so as soon as I joined this group, like someone messaged me and was like, "Hey, you know, I see that you're based in New York. Like I'm based in New Jersey. Like let me know if I can supply you some sperm." Which is definitely kind of wild. But I was wondering, I was like, you know, is that an offer that he gives to everyone, or is it because that you know he saw my profile and he judged? you know and like all of my box ticking like you know my race my education you know what I do right now that added up to a certain thing and then he deemed me like worthy of his bum then he like sent me that message and yeah I think that there are a lot of new legislature that's obviously happening but you know the change in the sperm banks going from heterosexual couples to queer couples and single women doesn't surprise me at all, given when you know gay marriage was legalized and how much easier it has been to be out. I don't think I could have been out really. I lived the life that I wanted to live, you know, like before gay marriage was legal. And even now, I think, especially at where I live in terms of intersectionality, like it has been super surprising for me how certain groups think society isn't heteronormative when it is anything but but I think that there's a lot of positive intention and feeling and that's ultimately why we're here right we're here to have these conversations but you know you you spoke Sarah earlier about how kind of traumatizing it has been you know for people to address their unconscious racist ideas but I've had so much backlash against me even from close friends when I try to bring up how heteronormative society is and when I say heteronormative it's not necessarily even but it's really from my intersectional lens of like you know race plus gender plus sexuality and that has been really painful for me because I know some of these conversations have been well intended but I had one of these the other day with a friend who we were talking about infertility policies in New York which is actually a very progressive state but in order for uh, queer couples to count as infertile under insurance purposes you have to have between six to 12 months of trying to get pregnant trying to conceive and to do that as a queer couple you have to do at least IUI uh, and so that's thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands of dollars it costs. And he suggested to me that maybe because I'm bisexual, I should just lie and tell them that I have a male partner instead, because then I would just qualify straight away. And I know that he was very well intentioned with that, that he was just trying to help me, you know, find a solution for this healthcare idea. But he just didn't get at all, like how hard I've worked in order to be my full identity in order to not have to lie about the fact that I have I don't have a male partner and that was really sad for me because I I just didn't want I know in order to have that conversation it's a deep conversation I'd have to force him to confront all of these assumptions that he made and you know sometimes you just want to like have an easy Sunday afternoon conversation where you're just chatting about what's up without having to go and dive into one of these things. For people who want to find out more about you, find out more about what you do, where can they find you? Yeah, so please check out a day. My company is A-D-A-Y on Instagram or thisisaday.com on the internet. And you can follow me on Instagram at uh, meg.he. And I just basically create content whenever I feel like there's a wrong in the world. (laughs) That is uh, essentially the core of my content creation. I love it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. And it has been a pleasure having me on. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful. 
You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop.